Good morning. First Peter chapter five begins with Peter saying, I exhort you, fellow elders. He then follows this with a reminder for the elders or the church leaders to shepherd appropriately, meaning to lead well. He then reminds those same leaders that over the church, there is a chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He then gives instruction toward the alertness that we need against our enemy, the devil, who will come against us in so many different ways to try to discourage the church. When I look at each of these phrases in the fifth chapter of 1 Peter, I'm reminded of how the church is significantly proven even in the midst of suffering. So as we conclude our teaching series in 1 Peter's epistle, how to live life proven, a solid faith in a shifting world, we see evidence here of the church remaining solid and strong, even in the face of persecution. And so today we take our cue from the persecuted church of the first century to discern how we can, can live strong, as the church, even in the midst of suffering. Congressman Frank Wolf, a committed Christian from Virginia, has been a spokesperson for international human rights for over three decades. The following is a summary that he wrote several years ago, having assessed the persecution of the church around the globe. He writes, Three nuns from Iraq just came into my office. They said that they have felt abandoned because half the Christian community in Iraq are now living in ghettos in Damascus, Lebanon, and Jordan. He continues to write, I was in Egypt just a few months ago. And since the late 70s, the U.S. has tried to better their relationship with Egypt, but the Coptic Christians have been woefully persecuted. And many of them, Wolf writes, wonder as to why the church in the West seems disinterested in the persecution around the world. In China, there have been roughly 30 Catholic bishops who were recently arrested. And then you have hundreds of Protestant pastors and house church leaders being imprisoned and persecuted. The church in the Sudan has suffered persecution. In southern Sudan, 2.1 million people have died recently, many of them Christians. And I still hear people saying, Wolf writes, all around the globe, the church in the West seems disinterested in our persecution. Today, church, as we enter into God's word, we pause to change this this attitude that's pervasive a lot of times, and that is when out of sight, out of mind. How can we forget the persecuted church around the world? We're about to read one final time from First Peter, truths that were spoken in to the persecuted Christians of, of the first century, but, but how can we conclude without pausing and asking God to be with those Christians, those churches, around the globe right now who are suffering and who are persecuted. So right now, wherever you're seated, I'd like to ask you to join me in a word of prayer for the persecuted church. Now, yeah, there are calendar dates that have been designated to this on the Christian calendar and on the church calendar, but for this moment, 
can we set aside just this opportunity before, before moving forward to truly pray for the persecuted church? So will you join me in prayer? Now, Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, lifting up to you our brothers and our sisters around the globe who at this very moment are being persecuted for their faith. We ask for strength, for healing, for protection and safety and restoration. We ask you that you would comfort those who've been injured by the, by the brutal violence of man. We ask for comfort for families who've lost members of their own household due to violence, because of their faith in Christ. So, Father, would you care for our brothers and sisters who are in harm's way around the globe at this very moment? And, Father, even here in our setting, there are many Christians who are suffering and struggling and discouraged. Father, our our hardships seem so little compared to the persecution around the globe. But, Father, there are precious brothers and sisters in Christ right now, here in our own setting, who are suffering, who are challenged and discouraged and and feel under some oppression. And Father, I pray for them as well, that we will find strength, renewed strength in our faith to truly be the people of God in the church and to stand strong against any hardship that that would come. Father, we ask you to guide our hearts now as we enter into this passage of scripture written into the context of the first century persecuted church. And may we take our cue to stand strong in our sufferings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen, amen. Well, thank you for allowing us to have that moment of prayer for for those who are suffering around the globe that are a part of the church. So now let's look into the epistle of 1 Peter. He writes some incredibly strong and powerful words for those who are enduring suffering. And we can learn from these words and and from these truths. Uh, I love how verse one opens in in a very organic and real way as Peter himself references uh, some certain points of view in his own life. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. So one point of view Peter practices is that of being an elder himself. And then he continues, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter also references a personal point of view of a disciple who traveled with Jesus, who actually saw and and understood the sufferings of Christ in his ministry, in his arrest, his death, but ultimately leading to his resurrection and ascension. And so Peter moves in verse 1 to the climactic point of view, and that is he references himself as a partaker with others in the glory to be revealed, meaning the glory of Christ. So we look at this real example of Peter's point of view, and we borrow from this the application of perspective. What we find in the closing chapter of 1 Peter is a reminder of the right perspective of the church in the midst of suffering. So I would like to share with you five specific perspectives. The first is this. We must have a perspective of the glory of Christ. That seems simple and very foundational, and certainly that is the truth. We we must keep as our ultimate perspective the glory of Christ. Peter wrote in verse 1, partakers also of the glory 
to be revealed. Peter wrote as, as a fellow elder, as a fellow presbyteros. We don't know that Peter meant this symbolically or literally. Symbolically, he would simply be identifying himself with the leaders of the churches in Asia Minor who've been scattered due to persecution. Or if it were more literal, Peter may have actually been responsible for one of those particular congregations himself, as well as an encourager for many churches. But in either case, Peter comes from the perspective of the church. And then he references his own life as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, which led to the ascension and the glory of Christ, giving us this perspective of the church, the glory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Our first perspective is to maintain and to, and to pursue the focus of the glory of Christ. And what is the glory of Christ? Well, the Bible can answer this in many ways, but I'll give you two. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, uh, this is what we're told. We have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the glory of Jesus references his identity as the idea of face of, of one's face always pointed toward their identity. So the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ references that Jesus' very identity is God himself. And so the the incarnation, the pre-existence of Christ, who he is in his fullness, references all the glory of heaven, all the glory of God. So in the identity of Jesus, we see God's perfect holiness, his righteousness. That references the glory of Jesus. But there's a second answer I invite you to remember. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we are told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the full expression of, of, his, of his essence, of his person. And so Jesus is not only referencing God in his identity, Jesus is referencing the glory of God as we experience Christ. The radiance of the glory of God in Jesus references how we experience God when we experience Jesus. And so here in verse 1, Peter emphasizes, oh, our number one perspective as a church in the midst of suffering must be the glory of, of Christ, who God is in all of his majesty and might and power and holiness and righteousness in Jesus. Now, in moments of suffering, individuals and churches oftentimes turn inward. And in moments of suffering, oftentimes, the flesh takes over and we tend to ask the wrong question. The wrong question is, in the midst of this suffering, what will the suffering cost me? Well, that's the wrong question. Although at times we become uh, pointed towards self-preservation when, when persecution and suffering comes against us. We begin to protect our turf. Oh, how can I maintain normalcy? How can I protect what I hold valuable and dear? Well, the wrong question is, in the midst of suffering, what will this cost me? The right question is, how will Jesus be glorified in this moment of suffering? Well, therein lies the perspective. When the church faces persecution as Peter's audience was facing persecution, and, and even when we are struggling in, in any essence of the word, our first thought should be, our first question, how, how can Jesus be glorified in this moment, we shouldn't be thinking, well, what would this cost me? Do I really want to stay faithful? What do I need to protect in my life? No. Our first thought should be, how will Jesus 
be glorified. The, the first perspective of the church, especially in the midst of suffering, is the glory of Christ, the fullness of God and his holiness made evident in the face of Christ, his identity, and made evident when we experience Christ in a relationship. He's the radiance, the experience of God's glory. There's an old church song that contains this line, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Those who've been in church a long time may recognize that as a line from the song, To God Be the Glory. This was written by Fanny Crosby, who wrote over 900 spiritual songs and hymns. The interesting note is that she wrote these without any ocular sense. She wrote these blind. And yet most of her songs reference seeing God and Jesus and the glory of God in Christ. So even in her blindness, Fanny Crosby knew that you really do not have to have physical sight to see the glory of God. You just simply need to know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, you know God's glory. And when you lift up Jesus by remaining faithful to him, even in the midst of suffering, then his glory is revealed. And we know Jesus himself said, when the son of man is lifted up, I will draw people to me. He said that in John chapter three. And when we focus on the glory of Christ, we know that others will be drawn to see Jesus for who he is as the full representation of God's love, peace, holiness, and righteousness. So our first perspective, focus on the glory of Christ. Now, there's a second perspective that the church needs to cling to, especially in moments of suffering. Second, we need the perspective of the church as the flock of God. This is a wonderful analogy, and yet I would consider it to be a, a literal reference to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now listen to verses two and three. Uh, shepherd the flock of God. Now Peter gained the attention of the elders and then he pointed them to their responsibility. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Well, this word compulsion has with it the obligatory requirements. Now I will say verse two and three are directed toward the the elders, the presbyteros, also the episcopos, those who are overseers. But the application is for all of us to realize God is instructing his leaders to carefully guide his church as sheep and as the flock because God's desire is to shepherd us through Jesus Christ. His desire is not that we institutionalize ourselves. His desire is not that we become so well-oiled and organized that we program the relationship right out of our essence. No. His desire is that we live as people of his pasture, as sheep that belong to the good shepherd. That, this is why careful instruction is given to those overseers, to those church leaders. If you have a place of leadership in this or any congregation, uh, this is applicable to you, but this is also applicable to every person who knows Jesus. We are a part of the church because of our faith is in Christ. We should see ourselves as the flock of God. And, and I love this imagery. Um, so we are, we are told uh, as leaders to shepherd the flock of God without compulsion, without obligatory requirements, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain. The purpose of the 
under-shepherd, the leader, the pastor, the, the presbyteros or the episcopos, the, the ultimate drive is not game. The ultimate drive is an earnestness toward the will of God. This word earnestness, translated in certain translations, uh, gives us the literal idea of a thoroughness of desiring God's purpose. Isn't that a beautiful picture? To be earnest toward a task is to have a thoroughness in our lives of desiring God's purpose. So leaders in the church must have in their own lives a thoroughness of desiring that the flock of God be cared for with excellence as God himself desires. And so this is a beautiful picture of our identity as sheep to the shepherd. This analogy dates back to the very beginning. We remember the psalmist saying in the familiar Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So, so we're the flock. God is our shepherd. Leaders are the under shepherd. We, we serve under the chief shepherd to care for the flock, but the church is the flock. I love Isaiah 40 verse 11 where, where God said through the prophet, I, I gather my sheep in my arms. I lead those who are with young. I'm very attentive to my own sheep. I love Ezekiel chapter 34. It is a powerful chapter on how God condemned the false shepherds of Israel. There were those who were trying to shepherd Israel in, in, in offices that were uh, appointed by, by God as far as their design, but their place in that office was driven by man. And oh, they led Israel so erroneously. They were false shepherds and, and God condemned them. And then in that same chapter, God said, Israel, you're my flock. You are my sheep. Oh, this is such a powerful picture of, of this second perspective. The church must see themselves as the flock of God. I remember in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Mark describes Jesus as looking at the crowd and he had compassion for them because they appeared to be sheep without a shepherd. So even Jesus himself was motivated to draw people to himself so that people may be drawn to God so that they could know the shepherding of God's love over their lives. Again, such a powerful picture. And do you remember? Do you remember Peter? After Jesus was resurrected, he's on the seashore with Jesus. He just jumped out of the boat, swam, and, and now they're having breakfast with the resurrected Lord. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. And then a third time, tend my sheep. I don't know if Peter felt overwhelmed by this, but I remember in that text of John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17, Peter points over to John and says, hey, what about him? Sounds like Peter doesn't. Let me divert some of this pressure to John. And Jesus said, no, you let me worry about John, Peter, for you, for you. Care for my flock. And so we see an image of that here as Peter has accepted that responsibility and encourages others. So if you're leading in the church, shepherd. Don't shepherd according to your ideologies or to what's comfortable for you. Shepherd, lead, care, minister according to the heart of God. Why? Because the perspective that we need is that the church is the flock of God. You see, in times of suffering, we tend to scatter, do we not? In times of suffering, we tend to run to where we think something is safe. But where we need to run to is under the wings of our good shepherd. We run to, to him and we cling to him. And in the 10th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus said, my, my sheep know me. They, they hear my voice. I lay down my life for my sheep and, and they do not come and go without coming through me. I'm the door of the fold. And so we cling to Jesus in our faith. We do not scatter. 
in our fellowship, but we cling to Jesus in our faith in moments of suffering. Because yes, a great perspective we need when trials come is to see the church as the flock of God. There was a, an author who did something very unique with, unique with Psalm 23. Uh, and this is what Paul Miller wrote about Psalm 23. He wrote, what would this familiar psalm look like about the good shepherd if every reference to the shepherd were taken out? And this is what Miller came up with. Why this encouraging psalm would be reduced to this if you took the shepherd completely out. Me, I shall be in want. Me, my soul, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear. Me, in the presence of mine enemy, my head and my cup. All the days of my life, I dwell nowhere. Because I fear. And then Miller writes this conclusion. If you take the good shepherd out of Psalm 23, we are left with obsessing over our wants in the valley of the shadow of death, paralyzed by fear in the presence of our enemies. No wonder so many are so cynical. You see, both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on the shepherd. This is so important because of a third perspective. As we move into verse 4, this is what we read. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will give you, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. There's that word again. You'll receive a crown, a reward of righteousness that mirrors the glory of Christ because he's He's the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. So our, our third perspective is to see Jesus as our chief shepherd. It was very important for, for Peter to emphasize this to a congregation, to, to churches who were under persecution. Because again, in suffering, we tend to desire to take the controls when we feel all things are out of control. Do we not? At times, man in his own flesh can go on a problem-solving venture because sufferings and challenges have pressed in and now we must solve our, our situation and our dilemma and find our way through. Well, there may be some truth to the fact that God would lead us to do that, but not without the, the rule and the reign of the chief shepherd over our lives. And so Peter reminds the congregation, hey, as I've just encouraged the, the presbyteros and the episcopos to be strong leaders, I'm now saying to the whole flock, you have a chief shepherd. His name is Jesus. Colossians 1.18 reminds us that Jesus is head over the whole church. So this gives us two applications. Jesus, as our chief shepherd, first reminds us that we're ultimately dependent upon him, much like the body depends upon the head. So we, we depend upon our shepherd. He is our chief shepherd. There is no other authority under which we serve than, than Jesus. He is our chief shepherd. So, so we respond to him in dependence, but we also respond to him in accountability. So because he's our chief shepherd, we, we, we're dependent upon him. But because he's our chief shepherd, we're also responsible to him. Dependent upon him, responsible to him. For here we are told the chief shepherd will give you a reward, a crown of righteousness. Contrasting those, imperish, those perishable garlands of, of flower and wreaths that were given in the Olympic Games uh, that Peter and Paul's culture was very familiar with in their time. But 
Here, the good shepherd will give a crown of righteousness, that which is imperishable, the reward of heaven itself, uh, uh, reigning with Christ and, and being under his glory. This represents the the reward of, of righteousness and whatever shape and form that takes when we're with him in heaven. And what a beautiful and glorious prospect, a reality for all of us as we continue to serve Jesus. He's our chief shepherd. We are dependent upon him. We are accountable to him. Now, the reference to Jesus as the chief shepherd has the obvious force and thrust for the entire passage here. But moving into verse five, notice that we now return back to a conversation Peter began with the presbyteros, the elders. In verse five, this is what we read. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble. Uh, the, the fourth perspective we need in, in the face of suffering is humility toward one another. We, we need the perspective of the glory of Christ. We need to see ourselves as the flock of God. We need the perspective of Jesus as our chief shepherd. But fourth, we need, to, we need the perspective of humility toward one another. You see, in times of suffering, God's designed that those in his church turn toward one another not turn on one another. But so often the second of the two happen. Pressure comes in and we begin to point and and lay blame or try to find some human reason why things are not going well. And at times the tendency is to turn on one another. This was very prevalent in the first century church. Many times Paul and Peter both are writing to, to explain clearly God's designed order of leadership in the church. Because in part, there were those who would raise up against the leadership who themselves did not have an office or either were very young in their office and they raised up to, to cause division and struggle because they were simply unhappy. Persecution can cause that. We can, we can tend to turn on each other and yet the scripture reminds us that we need to turn to each other. When Peter addresses the young men, he's not necessarily looking at those who are aged young, but those who are either very young in an office that they've been appointed into, or those who have no office. So the reference is more to an, an inexperience in the church compared to the, to the elders, to the presbyteros who have a God-designed office that they've been appointed to and, and through which they lead the church. And so he's already told those leaders, you need to shepherd like Jesus. But now he tells those under their leadership, honor them. Practice humility one toward the other. Don't try to subvert or, or to cause division, but, but honor those leaders over you. And then the, the climactic application in the latter part of verse five and verse six is clothe yourselves in humility. The word clothe, oh, can you imagine what Peter must have remembered? Do you think his mind went back to John 13 where he saw with his own eyes, Jesus stand up and, and put the, the towel around his waist. Scripture says that Jesus took off his outer garment and girded his waist with a towel, symbolizing that Jesus became a servant, and then he washed the disciples' feet. I guarantee you, that was in Peter's mind when he wrote here, hey, we need to clothe ourselves with humility. He saw Jesus literally do this, and now we, symbolically, in our attitudes toward one another, should clothe ourselves with the same humility by which Christ practiced, so that when persecution comes in, we do not turn on one another, we turn to one another, and in humility we serve and we build the other person up. 
verse 6. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, our, our lowest posture, humility, has been given the highest confirmation. God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so not only do we humble ourselves before one another, but according to verse 6, we humble ourselves before God. And we can do that without hesitation because as we cast all of our anxieties of these perplexing times on God, He cares for us. You do not need to defend yourself and, and your turf and your rights and, and your parameter. You, you humble yourself and serve others, even in the midst of persecution, because, because God cares for you as you humble yourself to care for others. So yes, the fourth perspective is humility, one toward the other. This is a powerful demonstration of the church in the midst of suffering. A 2017 New York Times article was titled in this way, Calling Yourself Humble Doesn't Sound as Humble as It Used To. This article cited many well-known athletes, people of notoriety, actresses, actors, who having received awards or some type of human acclamation would, would post, particularly in social media, would, would post uh, their, their uh, voiced humility because of all the recognition they have received. And so the article went on to describe that sometimes humility itself becomes vainglorious. Because while we say these awards humble us, the awards are listed and are given prompt attention. Well, you may or may not disagree with that perspective, but I'm inclined to agree that if we announce our humility in any way, we've just lost it. Humility, even if we say all of the great things that I've accomplished humble me, that's vain, glorious attitudes being covered with the word humility. I think that was the gist of this article. And and I'm inclined to agree with this perspective because many times we we call something uh, humble. We consider ourselves as people of humility, and yet at times we were desiring that that humility be recognized. None of that is referenced here. What is referenced here is casting all of our life onto Jesus and to trust him as we serve others with no, with no declared interest in ourselves and as we humble each other and care for each other. This, again, is a powerful picture of the persecuted church and a necessary perspective. So we come to a fifth perspective. We begin reading in verse 8. We've looked at the perspective of the glory of Christ and the perspective that we're the flock of God and the perspective of Jesus, our chief shepherd, which brings us to that perspective of having humility toward one another and toward God. But we come to this final perspective, fifth, beginning in verse 8. And be of sober spirit, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of sufferings are being accomplished by your brothers around the world. Again, our fifth perspective is this. Have the perspective that discerns evil. This is not just an add-on to Peter's encouragement. This is likely to, to be foundational as well. This is Peter's way of saying to the first century church, even though you're under Nero's persecution, Nero is not your enemy, ultimately speaking. 
The devil is. Now, I'm sure there were those in Peter's audience who would say, the devil's not prowling around seeking to devour me. Nero and his agents are. Well, no. Peter writes in the supernatural. He writes in the spiritual. Regardless of how evil manifests itself and regardless of through whom evil is manifested, the devil prowls. Because you see, especially against the persecuted church, the devil can't reclaim our identity away from Christ. So what he does is he prowls, according to verse 8, looking for an opening wherein to move and to destroy the witness of the church. And he will use moments of suffering and persecution more than any other opportunity that he may seek. So we need to have discernment as to that which the enemy is up to in our lives, especially in moments of suffering, in the animal kingdom, the, the lion roared and prowled, looking for a strategic entry, and then with the power of the lioness, they devoured their prey. The circling lion and his intimidating roar is an indication that Satan is always trying to discourage and distract Christians away from their core identity as being under the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, and being under God's full protection. And when the enemy can come in to to distract, he will then divide and he will try to destroy the witness of the church. He'll try to destroy that in the physical manifestation of Christians living for Jesus, but, but he can't destroy the witness of the church. In moments of persecution, the church has arisen and will stay strong, but the enemy's prowling and you and I must, we must discern. So regardless of the church that you represent particularly, as a follower of Jesus, you represent the church. And I encourage you today, discern what the enemy is up to in your church. The enemy desires to come in through the negative thoughts and comments and attitudes of people to divide and devour. I am asking you through the power of God's word, stand against that. Discern what the enemy is doing and cling to the truth of Jesus. And do not allow the devil to come in and distract you be responsible for the turf upon which you stand and discern through God's presence in your life how the enemy can, can move in and distract. Because this is a powerful perspective. We need the perspective that discerns evil. This is such a powerful reminder of, of the church. And I love the uh, concluding, the concluding verses. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory after you suffer a little while, he'll restore you and make you steadfast. In verses 12 and 13, there are some specific individuals to which Peter thanks, Silvanius or Silas, help Peter to get these words, this epistle out to the churches. And then there's a reference in, in verse 13 to the she who is in Babylon. I believe that references the church in Rome. Babylon was a Code name, I believe, to, to any place that was against God and against the church. And I believe the reference, personally, I think the reference here is to Rome. But nonetheless, Peter wraps up his epistle thanking those who were aiding in the support of the work of the church uh, around the, the globe. And so Peter encourages them, greet one another with the kiss and with, with love because peace is with you, peace in Christ. But, but in verse 10 and 11, this benedictory type closing, Peter encourages the church to remain established. There's a story from a aboriginal village in northern Canada where one wolf, a rabid wolf, came in one night and, and dis brought, brought incredible destruction. Now, also in this village, there were over 150 sled dogs. 
But, but here's the issue. The sled dogs were staked some distance away from each other so that they would not fight among themselves and injure each other. And so the owners, in their own mind, rightly staked them far apart. This rabid wolf came in, and because the sled dogs were separated, no one sled dog could stand against this wolf on their own. And this one wolf destroyed and killed many of those numbered among those sled dogs. And those that were not killed were injured severely. How did this happen? One lone wolf against so many dogs? Well, because the dogs were separated. And we cannot allow the enemy to separate followers of Jesus during times of persecution because then, oh, there could be some destruction, but we stand together. We stand strong in Christ and we stand established. That was Peter's wish at the end of his, his epistle. Be, be steadfast, be established together, even in the face of suffering. I, I, I can't think of a better way to close out this entire series than with a quote from our good friend, Charles Spurgeon. Hear his words. We cannot be established except by suffering. It is of no use our hoping that we shall be well-rooted if no March winds have passed over us. The young oak cannot be expected to strike its roots so deep as the old ones. Those old gnarlings on the roots and those strange twistings of the branches all tell of many storms that have swept over the aged tree. But they're also indicators of the depths into which their roots have dived. I look around the globe at the persecuted church and Statistics we read earlier confirm that the church is presently being persecuted. At times, if you look at the church, it may seem that the branches are, are gnarled and twisted. But that gnarling and twisting is just a representation of how deep does the root of the church grow. Because regardless of how strong the wind of opposition blows, the church still stands strong, vital, real, and alive against any persecution because the church's life is dependent upon the life of Jesus. The church is alive. She will always stand strong. And I'm encouraging you, dear Christian, as a member of the church, stand strong. Do not be discouraged or defeated by persecution. This is the day of the church to stand strong against any opposition so that Christ is glorified and the church is healthy and people are drawn to Jesus. Ah, in the midst of suffering, the church is proven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for meeting with us and teaching us through your word. Help us as we go forward as your people to be strong, not to be discouraged, but to be strong in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. For just a moment, I'd like for you to look at this texting number on the screen and a website location. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior, you can do that right now by praying, dear Jesus, I believe in you. I repent of my sins, I turn to you. I trust you as my Lord and as my Savior. I believe you died on the cross for me. I give my life to you. You can pray those words you can respond to this texting number at this website location and we'll reach out to you. It's so important that, that you receive encouragement as soon as you realize, oh, this is, this is my need. I need Jesus. And, and we're here to help. We're here to support. Thank you so much for being a part of this broadcast today. There's some announcements coming up. Stay tuned for that. Love you a lot. Look forward to seeing you soon. An exciting teaching series coming up starting next week. You don't want to miss it. Out of the book of Philippians, 
The title of that series is Live It. We will learn how to live the joy of our faith. I look forward to sharing that with you. God bless.